Uh, if you guys want uh, to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, that's where we'll be tonight. And I'll be reading the section from verse 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. And in keeping with the instructions uh, last week, uh, Paul is going to continue to give very practical ministry advice for Timothy. So our study tonight, uh, we're just kind of operating under the title of practical ministry. So last week was a personal ministry, and this week we're looking at the practicality of Timothy's ministry. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but rather a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So this uh, section of instructions for Timothy is on the back end of Paul's letter, and you, you'll notice that towards the end, especially in the middle of that section, there's this parenthetical chunk in verse 23 where Paul seems to give a strange kind of instruction to Timothy that doesn't really seem to have much to do with anything before or after. And that's a frequent feature of letters. This is kind of a touch point of Paul writing, and then he's got actually a person on the other side of this letter that he's writing to, Timothy. And so it just kind of pulls us out of the moment of Paul's argument, um, where Paul then gives a very personal counsel to Timothy, uh, which is essentially to drink wine uh, for the sake of his stomach. We'll talk, we'll talk about that verse. But all, all I'm showing you is there's a little uh, authentic first century feel to this letter, at least in these verses. Um, and this section, 1 Timothy chapter 5, remember, is in the section of Timothy's, uh, this letter of 1 Timothy, that deals with on the ground, we, we might say very practical instructions. And it can be easy for us in these sections of the letter to forget all of the foundation that Paul has laid for these very practical instructions. And remember, the foundation that he lays is that the gospel is central to everything that Timothy does in ministry. It's central to the preaching of the word. It's central to the preservation of the church. And it's central to Timothy's own salvation and also to the hearers that Timothy is going to be preaching to week in and week out to their salvation. And that gospel is that Jesus Christ came, was manifest in the flesh, uh, died for the sins of Christ's people, and that he resurrected and is ascended on high and is through his Holy Spirit now reigning and ruling in the life of the church through the, the preaching of the word, through the prayer of the saints, through their worship. 
And so God is, uh, has already done all of those things, and now Paul is giving Timothy these on-the-ground ways to functionally handle the church um, because the church is the visible arm of God's program here on earth. So the church, uh, in some sense, these instructions, although they seem very detailed and maybe alien to us, they do have a relationship to the gospel, uh, which is that these instructions are what a healthy church will do in its functionality. So um, last week we looked then particularly at widows. Uh, A healthy church will take care of those who are in need in its own context. So those who are in need, (laughs) those who are in need in the context of the local church will be taken care of by the local church. And in Timothy's case, that's the widows in the first century. And so Timothy has given specific instructions to take care of widows because that's related to what he he does as a result of what God has done for him and for the church. And so uh, I put the question to you all last week, especially at the end of discussion. Do you know in your own local church where your service and where your care goes? Do you know how us as a church, do you know how we care for those in our context that are in need? Uh, And then do you in your own life know how you care for those who the Lord has placed around you for you to care for and who you are responsible for. And so that's very, that's very practical instruction, but I want you to know that's related to your witness as a Christian in light of what God has done for you in the gospel. So uh, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in verse 17 and following, parsing out exactly what Paul is instructing Timothy to do, and then I'll try to spend a little bit of time getting to how that's relevant for us. Um, so there's, there's three things. I, you don't need to like write this down or anything, but there's three things I want to at least deal with tonight. The first is um, the use of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, particularly what is Paul quoting and how is Paul applying what he's quoting in relation to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, you'll see that particularly in verse uh, 18, um, where and, and actually continuing into verse 19, those are two sections of parenthetical citation from, from Paul. And then we're going to look uh, particularly in the, in the latter part of this section before chapter 6 uh, begins uh, from verse 21 through to verse uh, 24 about how, how Timothy is to do all of these things, let's say, publicly. Uh, and the, this is like Timothy's specific charge to, to do these things. Um, and particularly that is guarding the elders, guarding the purity of the church, exercising church discipline. Um, and then uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see how that applies to masters and slaves. If you read out of the ESV, it'll say bond servants and their masters. Um, but in the first century context, that's a lot closer to employer-employee relationships that you and I would experience today. So we're going we're gonna to try to make those jump. So that's at least the agenda for tonight. And then whatever we don't get to in teaching, we will cover in discussion. So, uh, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. Uh, we, we've talked a couple weeks ago, uh, I think it's when we were covering uh, the very beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we talked about how elders, our pastors, are overseers. So if you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul, said, Paul describes the qualifications of an overseer. And he says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay? So we have this category of people in First Timothy's letter 
that are called overseers. Paul gives them qualifications. Okay? And now later, in verse 17 of chapter 5, we have Paul referring to elders. Now my contention is, and it's been the historic understanding of the church, that Paul's referring to the same group of people just by two different names. So overseers are elders, uh, and then how we get the term pastor, especially as we use it very colloquially today in the first century, uh, or from the first century to today, is passages like 1 Peter chapter 5 and Acts chapter 20, where Paul speaks to the elders uh, or the overseers, and he tells them to shepherd the people of God who've been entrusted to them. And that word shepherd is a verb, uh, and the verb root is uh, a, a word that can also be translated pastor. So a pastor in, in Greek is a shepherd. So someone who is pastoring is shepherding the flock. So the elders shepherd. That's why today we don't really walk around calling pastors elders very often. In some churches we do, but it, you usually don't say, let's say if you're talking uh, about someone uh, and what church they go to, you won't ask them, oh, who's your elder? Often you'll just say, who's your pastor? And usually you're referring to the same thing. That, I just want you to know that's kind of how those words overlap. And, but what Paul introduces here in specifically chapter 5 or 17 is at least two different kinds of elders. So there are elders who rule. Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor. So there are elders who rule the church or lead the church. That's the same word. It's just being translated rule here, but it can also mean to lead. Uh, let them be considered worthy of double honor, the ones who do this well especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. So remember 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the qualifications for an overseer is that they must be able to teach. So for someone to be qualified as an elder, as a pastor, they must be able to teach. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17, we see that not all elders commit their full-time efforts and labor to the work of teaching. Functionally today on the ground, almost every church that you're going to go to in Indianapolis that's a Protestant church, We'll have someone who is an elder who serves full-time on staff, meaning their sole focus is the teaching ministry of the church. And then you'll have other elders who aren't necessarily employed by the church, who might have other jobs, work in other vocations, but who are also elders of the church. This is where we get a distinction like that from. It's, there are elders who rule well. They should, those ones should be considered worthy of double honor, but especially those who labor in teaching and in preaching. So you see the distinction. There are elders who rule, and then some of the elders who rule also labor in the teaching and preaching that we would say that's that full-time ministry. And most churches throughout uh, the Protestant tradition, at least, follow that pattern. Uh, there, uh, some traditions like the Presbyterian church would actually have official designations. There are some who are called ruling elders and some who are called teaching elders. Uh, most Baptist churches won't use the, that language, but they'll have the same office. You'll have an elder board and then you'll have the the pastor, but the pastor is also an elder who just is the teaching-focused elder. Does that make sense? So that's the distinction we get in the text. And then Paul uh, wants to show us how, do, how does Timothy show honor uh, to these elders. And in verse 18, we see that. For the scripture says, now he's going to apply from the Old Testament. This is a, a common Pauline introduction to quoting something from the Old Testament. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And quote, the laborer deserves his wages. So there's two quotations, one from the Old, one from the New Testament, both of them relevant for understanding what Paul means. Um, and so uh, let's go to first that Old Testament quotation, and I believe that is in Deuteronomy chapter 
20, or maybe Deuteronomy chapter 25. I had Tara text it to me. It's 25. Thank you. And it's uh, verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, That's the direct quotation. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Now, in context of what's being said in Deuteronomy 25, it's important that you understand this whole section is dealing with uh, kind of a bunch of strange circumstances that you could come across in an Israelite context while you're wandering around in the desert. And so in this case, um, let's say you're an Israelite who owns animals, as the Israelites did. They were uh, farmers. Um, you, it's, it's not uncommon that you'd be farming. You have an ox that's doing work for you. So how do you treat that ox well? How do you honor the ox as it's doing that work for you? While it's working to tread out grain, threshing grain and processing it for you, you allow it to also eat from the grain that it's processing within. So the ox eats from the very same work that it is providing you. So its work is also how it gets food. You see that? So then Paul quotes that uh, in 1 Timothy 5, but he also dovetails that quotation with uh, something that Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. And so uh, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 10, Uh, In context, Jesus has sent out the 72. And in in the sending out of the 72, one of the things he tells them is that when they get to a house uh, and the house accepts them, they should stay in that house. And I'm going to be reading specifically from uh, verse 8. Or sorry, uh, verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking. So this is after they've come to the house and preached the gospel. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And obviously in that thrust, he's giving instructions specifically to his apostles who are to go do this, is the 72. Um, so the disciples who are of them, there are apostles, but it's a broader group in that context. So what Paul's doing is he's taking two quotations, one from Deuteronomy, one from Luke, and he's applying it to the issue of how do you show honors, how do you show honor to your elders? And so the point is, um, the scripture says you should allow an ox to eat from its very same labor, and Jesus says uh, the labor is worthy of his wages. Uh, And so the conclusion is, and the practice of the church has been, uh, to pay those who minister in the full-time gospel ministry. Paul actually, in, in one of the contexts, he actually says to the church uh, that he's stealing money from other churches so that he can minister to this church because this church would have been offended if he asked for money from them. And so he describes his relationship with, I think it's the church in Corinth, as, as he's robbing other churches that have supported him in this effort um, because it would really be fitting for the church in Corinth to pay him as he labors over them in full-time ministry. Now, one of the benefits of expository preaching is it forces us to deal with every part of Scripture, um, and that includes me uh, as a pastor getting up here and telling you uh, pastors deserve to get paid by, by churches. So um, you can know full well I didn't start First Timothy off with that in mind, um, but here we are, and so I'm dealing with the text. Uh, so there's those two quotations, uh, one from the old, one from the new. Uh, additionally, uh, this is nothing to do with anything in First Timothy Um, But it does have to do with early New Testament canonicity. It's a big word. It means how do we know that the New Testament was around early in the first century? Some people allege that 
these letters were written much, much later. And one of the evidences they point to for 1 Timothy being written much, much later into the second and third century is because Timothy, or in this letter, whoever wrote 1 Timothy, quotes from Jesus word for word with the same kind of citation he uses to quote from another written document. So when, when Paul introduces the quotation in verse 18, for the scripture says, quote, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, he's not introducing an oral source, meaning something that was heard and, and passed around orally. He's introduced something that was written down, uh, literally the, what the writings say this, okay? But then he's, and then he breaks it up with an and, a transitional term, and then he quotes from the words of Jesus, which means, are you following? The Gospel of Luke, which is the only Gospel we have that records this exact phrase from Jesus, was a written source for the author of 1 Timothy. So you can do two things with that. You can either say Luke was written pretty early on and Paul was quoting from Luke. Or you'd have to say something like, well, whoever wrote 1 Timothy wasn't really Paul, so he had access to the Gospel of Luke. That's why he quotes from it. You see? But by all accounts, 1 Timothy was written by Paul, and so the more sound conclusion is to say the Gospel of Luke was created fairly early on, and this is one of Paul's last letters that he writes, 1 Timothy. So it makes sense that he would have access to two written sources, the Deuteronomy text as well as the text from the Gospel of Luke. So that's just a New Testament canonical development uh, for you. Um, so those are the first two quotations. And then the second uh, quotation uh, is found in verse 19. And this one's not a direct quotation, meaning you probably won't see quotation marks around it in your New Testament. Um, but this one is drawing almost exclusively from Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, so if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, we're going to be looking at that in relation to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, and we're going to be looking at verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, and you'll see very quickly how Paul is quoting from this. He's summarizing it. But uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he has meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So you have your finger there in the Old Testament. Uh, if you can, glance back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder. So he's applying this quotation from the Old Testament to elders now. Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So those are two verses that Paul is quoting from. But we often, many people misapply, I think, verse 20. And they say verse 20 is the elders who persist in sin that ought to be rebuked publicly. But if the quotation from verse 19 is correct, that it's from this section of Deuteronomy chapter 19, notice who in Deuteronomy chapter 19 are rebuked publicly. 
So Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, you, you, you have them present the appeal publicly on the basis of two or three witnesses. The Lord adjudicates. And then, verse 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 19, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest, the rest of the people, shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil. That any such evil is likely a false witness bringing a false accusation against someone. So in 1 Timothy, it's likely that Paul's saying the person who's being rebuked publicly in that context would be the one who's bringing a false charge against an elder. Does that make sense? Now that, by the way, that does not mean that elders are always getting off the hook. The implied in this is if the, the charge is a founded charge, Timothy, you should prosecute the charge. Now, I showed you the Old Testament quotation, but Paul is also drawing from a New Testament quotation, also from Jesus here, and that's from a famous text in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. And I know we're being slow through these early verses, but that's just because there's a lot of really important quotations to pull from. The rest, I promise, will go faster. Uh, I apologize, not Matthew... uh, uh, 19, um, Matthew 18, verse 15. I got, I got that confused with Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. So, um, so Deuteronomy 19, 15, that's the Old Testament quotation. Here, Jesus says something very similar. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here's the important quotation. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Before we go back to 1 Timothy, real quick, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the one who adjudicates between the false, the, the accuser and the accused, so there's two or three witnesses, they go together before the judge. Who does Deuteronomy chapter 19 says is there to adjudicate between them? It's the Lord. So if two or three witnesses come to accuse someone and the person doesn't repent, says this is a false accusation, they go together publicly and they go before the Lord, the Lord is guaranteed to be present in their midst to help in the adjudication. Does that make sense? Now here Jesus, Matthew 18, says, if you accept two or three witnesses against an accused person, and you follow this order of discipline, as you are working out that discipline, I will be with you. Jesus is claiming the same status as Yahweh in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, as you're figuring this out, I will be with you there. So as sentimental as this verse is for people gathering for church, it has nothing to do with gathering for church. Uh, it has to do with church discipline. Okay? Now that doesn't mean it, doesn't, it isn't actually true that Jesus is present among his people, but it's a specific quotation that Jesus is drawing from the Old Testament to say, I do what Yahweh does when discipline is being meted out. So he's saying, I'm God. Okay? Um, Okay, so what do we do with that in 1 Timothy chapter 5? The conclusion of that is actually a really simple application. 
Don't gossip. Don't slander. Paul said this elsewhere in 1 Timothy. On the basis of sound testimony, do church discipline. Very simple application, right? Church discipline is something that should be done, but it should be done as Scripture says church discipline should be done. I, uh, I think it was last year. Uh, I don't know if you guys watched the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial uh, on YouTube. Uh, I watched it on YouTube, uh, and I even watched like summary videos as well. I had it like playing in the background while I was supposed to be doing other work and chores and stuff. So um, one of the number one things that I heard during that whole proceedings of that trial uh, is you'd have someone on the witness stand, they'd be talking, and then uh, one of the lawyers would say, objection, hearsay, objection, hearsay, objection, hearsay. And sometimes that would actually be what's called hearsay, and sometimes it wouldn't. But I, I had no idea what they were saying for the first couple days. I was like, I don't know what hearsay is. So I had to Google it. Hearsay is when a witness is testifying that someone else told them something. And that evidence is not admissible in court because that's one witness trying to double or triple their own witness testimony. You see? For a witness to be viable, they have to be that witness. And so my point is, as Christians, on the basis of two or three witnesses does not mean hearsay testimony is reliable. So if someone comes with a charge against an elder, and instead of going to the elder directly, they tell their friend about the problem they have, now there's two people who have the problem, and now that second person says, well, I have a problem with this elder, and I heard it from so-and-so, you see what I'm saying? That's not how the New Testament deals with bringing up charges. The New Testament says they have to be evidences, independent lines of witness against someone, and when that witness is found out to be true, discipline them like it's true, right? You deal with that seriously. The point is, church discipline should be done, but it should be done according to the standard of Scripture itself. Uh, we don't do uh, trial by mob, uh, both in our justice system uh, or in the church. We shouldn't do it either in, in either of those ways. And one of the messiest things that churches can get into is trying to execute discipline in the church without following the biblical criteria for church discipline. And that application is as strongly on you as congregants of the church as it is on elders of the church, okay? So you are exhorted to properly settle disputes with those. Go directly to the person you have a problem with and settle your problem. Uh, don't gossip. Don't, don't go to someone else and say, I have a problem with so-and-so. Go to that person directly you have a problem with. If they don't hear you, then you can bring someone else along to adjudicate and ultimately bring an elder in, bring the church in so that they can help you in that process. But you go to someone directly if you have an issue. That's a huge problem, especially among young Christians in our, our church. Not our church, I'm saying in the Christian culture of America. Um, and if it is a problem in our church, it's up to you guys to solve that problem uh, as you encounter it. So take that as a, a personal application there. Um, so that is actually the longest section of this uh, letter. The rest of it actually goes really quickly. Okay, Verse 21, uh, Paul bolsters the witness before Timothy, and he says... Uh, before God and Christ Jesus and all of the angels in heaven, I charge you to do these things. So he's saying, uh, I'm doubling and tripling down on this command. This is like when he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here he says, I charge you in the presence of a whole bunch of powerful people. God, uh, Christ Jesus, and the angels uh, keep these rules. Notice, without prejudging, don't assume ahead of time you know what's going on, and don't practice partiality. Some of Timothy's friends are going to be elders, right? Timothy is going to appoint elders to the church. He's probably going to grow, grow close to them. If an elder is accused and the evidence is right, Timothy shouldn't be partial. 
and just because this person's their friend or because this person has a good reputation elsewhere, they shouldn't take the testimony seriously. But he also shouldn't rush to judgment, prejudge someone and say, I know what's going on without the witnesses, okay? So pretty, pretty strong application there for Timothy. And then verse 22, elders should not be ordained hastily. Do not lay on hands on someone hastily. Uh, elders should be approved. They should be mature. That's all from 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. We saw that already. Elders are to be mature, established Christians in the community. And then Paul says something personal to Timothy, right? Timothy, you're keeping up the health of the body of the church. I might summarize verse 23 by saying, Timothy, keep up the health of your own body as well, okay? He's, he's giving him a personal command. Uh, in this case, in the first century, drinking water wasn't always safe. It could lead to stomach problems. Timothy himself could have had frequent bouts of these kinds of issues. And so the prescribed treatment, the medical advice of the time found in other first century resources is drink a little bit of wine because it would kill or ferment and then kill some of the uh, pathogens in the water. This is not for Timothy when he's had a rough you know, sermon or preaching. <laughs> he's going to go home and drink some wine because he's sad. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Okay. And then verse uh, 24 and 25 uh, are the catch-all for what happens if church discipline uh, isn't properly executed. What hope do we have, let's say, if there aren't two or three witnesses and someone wronged me? The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them in a judgment, meaning some people's sins are obvious and can be pinned against them. And it goes before them in a judgment. They will be accused. Okay? But the sins of others appear later. Implication, only in the final judgment will those sins be dealt with. But so also are good works. Also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not will not remain hidden. So the conclusion is, uh, in this accusion, trial kind of situation, what happens if you follow this uh, jurisprudence to the letter of the law, even in our own justice system we know, sometimes following the code of law perfectly, justice is not perfectly done. Someone is falsely accused and convicted, even with good jurisprudence, or someone is let off who really was guilty of the things that they were accused of doing. So the hope for Timothy as he's working out this judicial process is that in the final judgment, all things will be made right. Okay. You see that? The works of some are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but also are good works. Some of them are well known before people, and some good works will be only shown in the last day. And then that brings us to the close of this text, uh, the last two verses. And the summary of this is, if you are a Christian and you find yourself in a situation of being an employee, uh, you should be the best employee your employer has. Let all who are under a yoke as a bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So Christian, regard your employer as worthy of all honor. Show them honor in your work by how timely you are, by how quality your work is, by the excellence of your conduct in the job, uh, in the job force. Do your best to honor your employer, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Imagine a Christian who uh, says they're reformed, loves theology, loves God, loves all that he's done in creation, and then uh, they go to their job on Monday and they do the bare minimum and they're just the worst employee and they're doing everything they can not to get fired. That's not a good testimony. Imagine someone finds out that person is a Christian and goes to such and such a church. What kind of conclusions will they draw about the teaching that's going on at that place, right? You, Christian, bear witness to Christ and to his kingdom by your actions and activities. So Paul says, uh, 
honor God so that the name of God and the teaching would not be reviled. Honor your employers. And he says to employers uh, and those who have believing masters, so if you're an employee and you have a master who's a Christian, you should not be disrespectful on the grounds that you are brothers. So don't be casual with them. Don't say, still treat them with honor. But also, rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So the Christian employees are to honor secular employers and Christian employers equally. And just because they have a brotherly fellowship with someone in the church context, let's say you leave here and you have a different relationship with someone in a more employee-employer relationship outside of the church context, honor that boundary well and doubly honor the person who's a believer because the person who benefits from your labor is a Christian. It's a brother or sister in Christ. So don't take advantage of the intimacy that you have elsewhere. Okay? Implied in this is that Christian employers are to treat their employees well. It's implied in all of these commands. Because believing masters must not be, uh, must not be mistreating their Christian employees. Right? That would also be against the thrust of God's instructions. So, in conclusion, uh, this section is very practical on the ground ministry. If, if Paul thinks it's important enough to write to the church and say, here's how you operate in such and such a situation, it's probably because he had the foresight, as he's writing to Timothy, who's going to be a pastor, to tell him, hey, in this case, behave this way. In this situation, do this. It's very practical. But that advice applies over and over to the life of the church. You know, we don't face the same situations Timothy's facing today. Uh, many of you are never going to be a pastor, and so, but, but you can still see how abidingly relevant the application of Paul to Timothy is, even thousands of years removed from the context. Because Paul's just giving good Christian godly advice that just seeps with wisdom uh, from, his own, uh, from his own mind and his own communion on the Word of God. So, uh, we as Christians should, yes, believe true things about Jesus Christ and the gospel, but we should also live and practically exercise our commands on the ground, informed by what God has done for us in the gospel. And that means behaving wisely, acting justly, honoring those who we are employed by, and just putting forth a good name for Christ in the world. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this text and these verses which now stand before our minds uh, to help us uh, as we go forth uh, into the week. And Lord, we ask hard questions like, how do we honor you in our work? How do we honor you in our relationships? How do we put to bed gossip and how do we really settle disputes well uh, among believers in Christ? Lord, we trust you in this process that you will be with us as we seek to reconcile broken relationships, as we seek to honor you in our work. And Lord, we are trusting that these things we do in obedience to you, uh, we do not because you just tell us to, but because we love you, because we want to serve you, and because you tell us and you command us how we ought to behave as a church. We pray this all together in your name. Amen.